friends. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Lou. How good are morning. you? I'm very good. How are we doing today? Good, good. Uh, how's your cold? My cold is good. I'm feeling better, feeling much better. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad I didn't get it during this uh, teen weather here, this 12-degree weather we're having. Oh, yes. With the wind chill factor, it's below zero, right? Holy cow, yeah. yeah. It's cold. And where I live, there's a lot of wind. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think you can probably see the snow over here yep. and the wind. Mm -hmm. But at least it's a sunny day today, so that's nice. That's right. Uh, so, friends, today we are still going to talk about Chapter 2, and we are going to talk in this session from verse 40 to 44. And the next session will be a little ambitious, going from 45 to 53, which is eight verses in a half hour or so. Mm -hmm. um, and... I need to, there's a disclaimer I need to make. One is that when you listen to uh, real swamis, which I'm not, right. um, who have become self-realized or close to it, they can speak for hours on one verse itself, whereas we're covering eight verses in a half hour. Right. And the reason for that is this is meant from a second grader like myself, <laughs> I would say at least I'm not a kindergartner, second grader, <laughs> yep. to other people who are kindergartners and first graders who are new to this. Right. Uh, this is to whet your appetite, friends, so that if you hear about it and it's not too complicated, you show more interest and you can learn from other real swamis. Um, this is not an in-depth discussion of the scriptures. So that's why we can go that fast. Now, this is a primer, right? Just get people familiar familiar with the concepts and hopefully, as you said, whet their appetite, get them, uh, get them excited to delve into it a little bit more. Right, exactly. I mean, I got a lot uh, from just getting to this point from zero. Uh, I, I have learned a lot, and I've, my life has changed dramatically. Everybody who has ever heard this and seen this and read it says it has affected their life greatly. So... Uh, obviously, my desire is to pass this on to others, the next generation, so that they can also benefit from it. So we left off last time talking about verse 39, and I wanted to catch, uh, take off from there. So in verse 39, Lord Krishna says, cast off the bond of action. And some people have asked me, what is that bond of action? And the bond of action refers to desires, or vasanas, as they're called in Sanskrit. Yes. The underlying uh, driving force of a desire is a vasana. We don't have the translation for a vasana in, um, in English, but it's basically the engine that lies dormant within one's mind and intellect that travels with us from one life to the next. We believe in reincarnation, and it keeps going on with us. So if you have a uncanny ability to play music, mm -hmm. and when you die and you're reborn, that vasana for music is born with you. So you see, when at a very early age, because of the previous skills, you're able to play music, remember things, remember music, and people say, this is a prodigy. Mm. Uh, and it's because of your vasanas from a previous life. So the there are two kinds of desires and thoughts, and one is uh, selfish, uh, desire-ridden thoughts and actions, and the other is selfless, and there's also unselfish. Mm -hmm. But when you have selfish and egocentric 
desires, your actions become selfish and egocentric. And the more selfish and egocentric your actions are, the more sorrow and misery they generate. This is a very, very important concept to recognize that when you perform an action, if there is selfishness attached to it, I want, I want, I'm doing this because I want this, right. then it generates misery, almost guaranteed. You may not recognize it, but that's the action that will take. Every action results in something else. And if that result is something that you're looking for, which is known as the fruit of that action, then you're going to suffer from that. So up to now, up to verse 39, we were talking about Sankhya Yoga. And Sankhya Yoga is a sequence of thoughts that take you logically from point A to point B so that you're convinced that this is a sound result. That's Sankhya Yoga. Now we're going to be talking about Buddhi Yoga and Karma Yoga. Mm -hmm. So Sankhya Yoga up to verse 39, Buddhi Yoga and Karma Yoga till verse 45. And in verse 45, he starts talking about what is a self-realized person all about? What does he look like? So let's talk about Sankhya Yoga first. We all believe when you say, who are you? After you say, I'm a man, I'm, this is my name is Lou, uh, my name is this, my name is that, then you're really saying, I identify with my body, my mind, and in my intellect. Right. And that's really who we all think we are. But we're really not. What we really are, these are just the outer clothes that we have. What we really are is the Atman, the self with a capital S inside. That's who we are. And that Sankhya Yoga is a sequence of thoughts that logically takes you to the point where you believe that you are the Atman. So we believe that 2 plus 2 is 4, right. which is the right thing to do. Now, suppose from early childhood, we were taught that 2 plus 2 is 5, and we go up believing that. It's going to take a great deal of effort to convince somebody that 2 and 2 is not 5, but it can be done. You take two apples, you take another two apples, and you put them together and say, hey, this is not 5, this is 4. Once that person is convinced of that, they say, okay, I believe you now. I always believed that 2 plus 2 was 5, but now I believe that 2 plus 2 is 4. That is a sequence of thoughts and a reconditioning of one's thoughts. That's what we are doing here in the Gita, to recondition our thinking, to switch from thinking that I'm the body, the mind, the intellect, right. to believing that I'm the everlasting Atman. Difficult concept. To become the Atman is to become self-realized. I like so, the example you used in the past of a car. I mean, our mind, body, and intellect is our car. But who's the driver? We're the driver. We're not the car. Well, actually, we're not even the driver. Not even the so, driver. Oh, yeah, the, not you, even the you driver. use the, pe you use are, the fuel. We are just yeah. the petrol. We're yeah. just the fuel. Yeah. The Atman is the fuel. The Atman does not make a decision. The Atman doesn't decide where the car is going to go. Oh, I see, yes. The mind and the intellect is the driver. The mind and the intellect can be the mind of an intellect of a terrorist, and he takes a car and he slams it into something because he's got a bad, uh, right. a bad uh, dimension to his mind. Or it could be a saint driving the car. His mind and intellect is more pure. I see the difference now because the Atman makes no choices, has no decisions to make, is not going anywhere. It just is. 
That's right. Yeah. The Atman is everywhere, doesn't go anywhere. It just fuels, it gives inner energy. It's like electricity in a bulb. It doesn't create the, uh, it, it doesn't determine what color the light is going to be. That depends on the bulb. Or whether it's the, on or off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So that's Sankhya Yoga. And so then, as of verse 40, we're going to be talking about Buddhi Yoga and Karma Yoga. Something to be understood because from 45 to 53, eight verses, he's going to be talking about the same thing over and over again, slightly different in context. Why is it that important? It's, it's important because, number one, the Gita was written by sage, a sage, Vyasa. And Vyasa wrote also the four Vedas, Rig Veda, Sama Veda, etc. Those Vedas were, in many fold, they were, uh, first was rhymes, and then prayers, rituals, and then in the last part of every Veda is the Upanishads. The Upanishads is a very high-flown um, philosophy from which the Gita is taken to simplify it. So when Vyasa wrote this, he said, you have to do certain rituals. And those he called, he called them karma yoga. Mm. Karma means doing things with your body, and yoga means using it to get together with the self. What he found by the time the Mahabharata was written, Mahabharata is a huge big book with an epic story about the Pandavas and Kauravas who fight in this war in which the Gita is, and the Ram Mahabharata Ultimately, right in the middle is 700 verses, which are called the Bhagavad Gita. We are only focused on the Gita, but mm -hmm. surrounding the Gita is the Mahabharata, which is much bigger. Thousands of years before that, or long before that, was the Vedas. I don't ask me how he wrote the Vedas and the Gita. I don't know. Yeah. But it was said that he wrote the Vedas and he wrote the Gita. Um, and in the Vedas people were told to do rituals, which was known as karma yoga. Mm -hmm. So he said, by the time the Gita was written, people were so deluded, they had a delusion that if they do a certain ritual, then they get the karma. And right. they said, that's all I have to do. And he said, that's wrong. He says, first he started saying that karma yoga is the actual performance of a deed that is selfless or unselfish, not a selfish selfish unselfish he meant doing something for others not right. for your own personal gain if you're if you're teaching somebody something and you don't want the accolades the praise the rewards or money for it then you're doing an unselfish deed but if you're doing it for a higher uh, force like god then it's a selfless deed so he said better than selfish deeds actions are unselfish actions, which you're doing for others, better than unselfish actions are selfless actions. Mm -hmm. And he said, do karma yoga that way, which is unselfish or selfless action. Then he realized that it's not just the actions, because people could say, okay, I'm doing this action. It's not for me, it's for somebody else. But my mind is somewhere else. So he says, really, he called it buddhi yoga. Buddhi meaning knowledge. He says the knowledge of what you're doing and why you're doing it is what's important, not the action itself. So he called that buddhi yoga. So Krishna shifts to buddhi yoga as of verse 40, and this is an action which is propelled by one's intellect, not by the greed, desires, etc., from the mind. 
So verse 40 says about karma yoga now, quote, there is no loss of effort in the performance of karma yoga, nor is there a production of contrary result. There's no loss of effort and there's no contrary result. Even very little of this discipline, which is karma yoga, protects a person from great fear. Hmm. So what he's saying is, you don't need to do a lot of effort to perform karma yoga, very little effort, and there's no loss of effort. So what is loss of effort? You could be a farmer and you spend months tilling the ground and sowing the seed and everything. You put a lot of effort into this action. Now you're waiting for the result, which is for the crop to grow. But there's no rain that year. So what happens? All of your effort is lost. So a person could say, well, if I do all this effort to do karma yoga, you know, selfless service, unselfish service, what about all that effort? And he says, that effort, whether you get a result from it or not, is producing another big result, which is an internal result. It is purifying your mind of the vasanas. Right. And this is what he repeats again and again, so I'm explaining it more carefully here, that there is no loss of effort. Whatever effort you put in, contrary to the farmer who put seeds in and didn't get any result, right. any effort you do that is for somebody else is going to help you because it purifies your vasanas. Our vasanas have come to us from many, many lives before this. My vasanas, your vasanas, everybody's vasanas are there. How do you get rid of them? And he says the way to get rid of them is not to do more selfish actions, which will generate more vasanas, but instead to lean towards doing unselfish and selfless actions. So that's no loss of effort. Without action, you cannot get a result. You have to act. Everybody has to act every minute of the day, every second. Um, why? Because you do not seek effort results on the outside. Why is there no loss of effort? Because we're not seeking any uh, results on the outside. Right. You're seeking results on the inside. The mind gets purer and purer on the inside. It's more peaceful and laser sharp. Now, he also said there is no production of contrary result. What does that mean? Contrary result means if I were to take medication and instead of getting the effect of lowering my temperature or fever because I have it, it actually causes me side effect. I break out in a rash. Right. That's a contrary result. So he says when I do karma yoga for others in an unselfish or selfless way, there's no contrary result. Either you get a result or you don't get a result on the exterior. Right. You're definitely going to get a result within you. Your mind is going to be purer, calmer, no vasanas, and there's no contrary result. So no bad things can happen. Um, so it's important in order to consider this buddhi yoga to have a good attitude towards your karma. Not to be concerned. What is that good attitude? Yeah. It doesn't mean you've got to be smiling and <laughs> laughing and saying, hi, guys, everybody. It means that you're not that good attitude is to say, I don't care about the results. I'm doing this because I want to do it. It is what I ought to do. And whether people benefit from it or not, my teacher, Gautam Jain, always used to say, if I came here to give this class 
and I worried about how many people are here, are they listening to me, are they doing their homework, are they getting something out of it, are they thinking good things. Then he says, all of that is for naught. He says, I just have to come here to do what I ought to do, which is to teach. And if each one of us goes out and teaches a little bit without regard for money or fame or name or anything like that, he said, you're just doing a good thing. There's no results that are you're asking for. So it's important to have a good attitude and not to be concerned about the results. Fear of the world, fear of death, fear of pain, fear of separation, failure, all of these fears and anxieties are constantly within us. He says, you will become free of all these fears with even just a little bit of karma yoga. Hmm. You do a little bit of this unselfish attitude, you start to say, you know what, I really don't fear any of this because I, I'm not in it for myself, I'm on it for other people. Right. You remember I told you a story, uh, I told everybody a story about a Chinese philosopher, this was in the Chinese mythology, who lived up in the hills, and every morning at sunrise he'd come down to the village, and the whole day all he did was go from house to house and say, you need any help? Yeah. And he would just help people and then go back to his heart. And then, of course, there was a very rich man who uh, molested a, a servant in his uh, thing, and he, uh, she got pregnant, and he said, go and accuse that man. Right. Remember that story? Yeah, I do. That's oh, it's a whole other story. But <laughs> anyway, that man spent his whole life doing karma yoga. Every morning he'd come to the village, he would do things for other people without any asking for money, food, anything. And at the end of it, he'd be very happy and go back. So the other thing that this says is by doing this kind of karma yoga, you get tremendous happiness when you start doing for others. So there's no loss of energy. We covered that. There's no production of contrary result. Peace and happiness results. And we, most of the time we do any action for either peace or happiness, but if we don't do it with the attitude that I'm doing this for somebody else or for a higher power, you don't get peace or happiness. In fact, you actually get the exact opposite because yeah. no matter whether you're doing it for money, instead of saying, wow, I got it, I'm happy, that small bit of happiness will last for a short period of time and then immediately your vasanas, which resulted right. as this, says, I need more money. Let's do that again. Let's do that action again. So it becomes a vicious cycle. But if you do it in the spirit of karma yoga, you gain peace and happiness. So that's verse 40. Verse 41. Um, in this, the intellect is resolute and one-pointed. Hmm. Many branched and endless, indeed, are the thoughts of the irresolute. So what he's saying is the irresolute means somebody who doesn't think of the Atman, is selfish, looks at himself. And so... And bahushakha means many branches. So there's no direction. Right. The mind doesn't have any direction. It is in the scriptures considered to be a monkey. You know how monkeys, if you put them in the trees or branches, without reason, they're jumping from one branch to the next. Right. And if you force them to sit in one place, instead of sitting quietly, they're constantly moving. So he says, if you have a mind, like a monkey, which we all do, he says it jumps from one topic to the next, number right. one. Yes. And if you focus it on one thing, instead of being resolute about that one topic, while you're in that topic, it's sort of wavering all the time. So he says, that's the mind of the irresolute. 
Whereas if you think that you become self-realized, you're resolute, the intellect is resolute and one-pointed. So the many branches means there's no direction. It jumps from one to the next. Ananta refers to dimension. And, and that's where it gets into a deeper level, which we won't touch about. Mm -hmm. So of knowledge, how do we get knowledge? One is the study of scriptures. You study what we're doing now, you study the scriptures, and it gives you your goal and destination. That's where we ought to go. Right. The second is known as Shabda Pramana. Shabda means word. So we hear this word from other people. So we've never seen atoms or molecules, right. but we don't know what they are. But we know that there are people who study them and who tell us that there are atoms and molecules. We don't know that. But right. we take their word for it, and we say, okay, fine. He's given us his word that there are atoms and molecules, so we say, fine. That is another form of knowledge, that we mm -hmm. take from somebody else what he tells us is right, we believe him. Right. Second is our own experiences. So, pratyaksha pramana. That means if we look at the flower and we said, somebody tells you the rose is red, we actually look at the rose and we say, yeah, okay, I believe it, its flower is red. I've looked at many roses, they're all red. So you use your own senses to determine whether what somebody's telling you is correct or not. The next one is inference, which is anumana pramana, which is inference, that if there's smoke, you see smoke, you say, okay, I see smoke, therefore there has to be fire there. Right. So you're inferring it. All of this is so that we're talking about the Atman, right? Ultimately, how do you get to know this is Atman? We study the scriptures, we listen from people who have told us that there is such a thing as Atman, believe me, there is. Our own experiences about as we get further, we say, yeah, no, there has to be because this can't be unless there was an Atman. We infer it by various things that we're talking about. Next one is Upamanam, which is comparing the unknown versus the known. So let's say you go in a rocket ship to, and to the moon. Mm -hmm. and you pick up the soil from the moon and you bring it back to NASA, and then over there you compare, you're comparing that soil to Earth soil. So you compare something that you don't know with something that you know, and you say, what's the difference? The next one is the study and the effect, the cause and the effect. Mm. So you understand the effect, you study the effect, and you see what the cause is. So you wake up in the morning, and you look outside and you say, whoa, Last night I went, the ground was clear, now I see snow. Yep. What is the knowledge that you get? That it's snow during the nighttime, <laughs> right. right? Common. So that is the effect. You study the effect, you see what the cause is. And the last one is absence of something. So if there's nothing there, you go to a planet, you look around, you study it, you say there's nothing here growing, so you say there's no life on this planet. So the absence of something also gives you knowledge. Such a knowledge by these seven ways of gaining it is irresolute. Nothing can shake that because you've gotten it right. with that. So the real answer that you need to be taught is the Atman, which is different from our body, mind, and intellect. And those who do not have this understanding have many branches, many goals, many attractions in the world. Um, and by studying this, your mind becomes resolute and you can be fixated on learning about the Atman. Then the next one is verses 42, 43, and 44. Those three are usually lumped together as one. And basically, it says the unwise using flowery speech 
rejoicing in the letter of the Vedas, saying there's nothing else than this. This is what we talked about before, that because Vyasa wrote the Vedas, where people look at it, it's a flowery speech, very nicely written, and you say, wow, I love the Vedas. This is what it is. I don't need to do anything else. Right. I just need to say these verses, these prayers. And we know that from churches, mosques, temples, that people just go there and they think if they do no charity, right. don't help anybody else, just go there and say the prayers, then they're fine. So this fairly self-explanatory. Next verse is obsessed with desires hmm. for money, for this, for that, with heaven as the ultimate goal of birth and action, they prescribe many specific rites for attainment of pleasure and power. So again, yep. they're obsessed with desires. They want to go to heaven, what they think is heaven, the ultimate goal, goal of not being born again and again and doing the right action. They perform rites and rituals, and they think that this is going to get them there. Right. Those who are attached to pleasure and power, whose minds are drawn away by that flowery speech, have no determined intellect fixed in God consciousness. So all of these are pretty self-explanatory, but I'll go over them quickly. Religions, by nature, are materialistic in, 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 its, in their nature. Mm -hmm. Their speech is flowery. They do not have a proper understanding, most people who follow this, about the world. It's not spiritual. They're, they're only relating to pleasure and prosperity. So we all seek security, knowledge, pleasure, and bliss in this world. Pleasure, bliss, security, and knowledge. We get frustrated because these things are not present in the world. We say, where's security? I don't feel secure. I've got lots of money. I've right. got this. I've got that. And I still don't feel secure. I'm still anxious and insecure. I don't have the knowledge, no matter what knowledge I've, I feel that I don't have it. I don't have pleasure. I don't have permanent bliss. And you get one gets frustrated because of that. Dharmic people who are follow the dharma right. become do it in a proper attitude and actually get more of this than somebody who follows it in an a dharmic way. Yes, um, that's something for us to discuss, and we'll talk about that as we go further. Um, Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes to see if there's anything that I've missed out here. So religious practices are not meant for any gains. Right. They're not for pleasure or power or wealth. I'm not knocking religious prayers or rituals. What I'm saying is that should be used to get to a higher level, which is to use it for the pursuit of getting to be one with God, to get to be one with the Atman. It's like a river that is supposed to start in the mountains, Himalayas River Ganga, which is a very holy river in India, yes. and comes winding down, and ultimately, no matter what you do, it wants to get to the ocean. And then it comes into the ocean. That's its fulfillment. We all have that drive to become one with the Atman. We are the river. Along the way, we find a way blocked, we go around it. So the river winds back and forth, but ultimately it does get to the Atman, get to the ocean. So the religion, the prayers, going to a temple, the rituals that you follow are all meant to give you the ability to get to be one with the self so that you push aside these distractions. 
it's not an end in and of itself, right. that but, religion. But many people think it is. They think the ritual is the path. Right. Yeah. So what he says is that the Vedas are a way of getting to the self. It's The example given is that this is like a pole for pole vaulting. We talked about that last time. Right. To jump over the barrier that you would need the pole, without the pole, without the Vedas, you can't get there. But once you get to the top, in order to go over, you've got to let go of that pole. You right. have to let go of the Vedas and even let go of the studies and everything else to go over to become self-realized. You can't carry the Vedas with you. Um, okay. So, scriptures, logic, experience, by studying this, you get firm conviction. Yeah. And you have to then ultimately get to know that you are not the body, not the mind, not the intellect. So we have now gone from verse 40 to 44. And the next, from verse 45 onwards to 53, basically he'll talk to us about what exactly karma yoga is and how do you perform and what do you do, etc. So, friends, I hope that you will continue to write to me. Some of you write to me in Messenger, which is fine, but then it's like a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I'd prefer that you write to me, right, Lou, yes. on Facebook. Yeah. Put your questions down there, and I will answer you to the best of my ability. And by the way, please find somebody who might find this interesting and share, the, share this with them, too. The more people we have here, the more uh, fun we can have and the more interesting this will get. So if you have someone who's interested in this, Wants the primer, wants to come along for the ride, make sure you share, share our program or our podcast. Yes, thank you very much, and I'll see you next time.